The CFOs that get it, get it. The CFOs that don't, don't. Let's talk about the CFO, the Chief Financial Officer. There are two kinds of CFOs. One who's struggling to keep up, spreadsheets everywhere, manual processes. It takes weeks to close the books. The other kind is on top of their game. Automated reports, inventory, commerce, and HR flow into the financial model seamlessly. NetSuite is everything you need to grow all in one place. That's why NetSuite is the number one cloud financial system used by over 28,000 growing businesses. 93% of businesses increased their visibility and control after upgrading to NetSuite. Head to netsuite.com slash c-suite for a special one-of-a-kind financing offer. That's netsuite.com slash c-suite. netsuite.com slash c-suite. This is Profit from the Inside with Joel Block. Insights to give your business the inside track. And now, here's your host, Joel Block. What does the future look like for healthcare and how it listens to its patients? And better yet, how can we adapt some of the leading edge issues that the healthcare industry is applying to itself to other industries? To answer those questions, Brian Lee. Brian, welcome to the show. Good to be with you. Hey, well, listen, thanks. So you're a uh, very well-known expert in the healthcare industry, and uh, you guys are taking patient care, which is a really big problem in the United States, and you're in Canada, and you're taking these issues really to task. So we're going to get to other industries and some things later, but how do you help a giant industry like healthcare take care of these patients because in a funny way, the patients aren't really the customers. They're kind of the people that we work on, but the customers, the insurance companies or whatever, how do you organize these things and think about them? Sure. Well, let's keep in mind, healthcare is 17% of the GDP of this country. Your country or the, or the United States? United States, United States. Okay. Well, the United States and Canada. I mean, everything, Canada just divide by 10. But <laughs> you know that healthcare is, is a mega tiny little niche that consumes us and that it's important just like any other industry and it needs to compete just like any other industry and it has its its challenges. In some respects, it's been behind technology and the marketplace. Uh, you go back to Y2K and you know healthcare was badly funded for technology. The other thing is it's been very hard for healthcare to get control of its costs. Because if you look at most industries, uh, you've seen quality improve, costs go down dramatically. And that's been the paradigm. Over time, yeah. Go to healthcare and it's been costs have gone up and uh, quality is slowly going up and costs are not going down very much. They're struggling with it. Well, let's define quality yeah. because, uh, you know, certainly doctors have gotten better. Uh, hospitals have gotten better. Pain is going down. I mean, it seems like a lot of things are going better. But when you talk about quality, you're not talking about the science of rendering the services, are you? I'm, I'm talking about both. But more importantly, I want your listeners to get that. Which does the patient better understand their clinical treatment or personal experience? 
The fact is they have no idea about their clinical expertise. Ask any doctor what patients know about their skill set. But they do know if they're kind. They do know if they're good listeners. They do know if they're compassionate. They do know if they have manners. So what we do know is that healthcare is evaluated and judged. Yes, clinical matters, and there's all kinds of watchdogs on that. And the experience is what differentiates most healthcare organizations, whether it's a hospital, a clinic, a nursing home, home health, a Medicare Advantage, we can go on and on and on. It's what differentiates you from your competitors because in healthcare, prices are pretty well the same. There's not much choice in price. Quality, generally speaking, is pretty well the same. However, the experience is not, which is why we're seeing an explosion of public websites and health organizations that rate and allow the patient to rate their experience. That goes from Facebook and Google to healthgrades.com, which gets a million visitors a day, to rate MDs, and it goes on and on and on and on. So what's happening in healthcare is we're becoming starstruck. We are preoccupied not just in healthcare, we're preoccupied with ratings and everything. And healthcare is late to the table, but it's getting in the game big time because it matters. You know, I hate to be cynical, but you know, with insurance companies having so much power, how much difference does it make what the grades are? The insurance company sends you to the doctor that they are going to pay for. So how important are these grades? And we're going to generalize what you're talking about to general business in a little while, but because I see a lot of parallels. I mean, I already can hear a lot of stuff. Let's just focus for a second on, on the healthcare business where you're from. How much difference does it really make? So let's talk about the 6,000 hospitals and hospital systems in the U.S. They're not motivated on the quality of experience they provide to satisfy the insurance company. They're interested in the patient because most patients do have a choice, even with their insurance company. Now, most doctors do not work for hospitals, although there's a trend towards that because of insurance rates. And you're a doctor today, you put out a shingle, you're going to be busy. So, however, does it mean that your patients are going to rate you five-star they may rate you four star, three star. So what motivates physicians is a lot of things. There are many, so many factors. It may be wanting to stay busy. It may be personal, professional pride in what the community thinks about them. There may be other factors. I will tell you right now that the large organizations that doctors belong to are preoccupied with ratings because their employers want the dollars. They want to be part of health insurance plans. They want to be part of ACOs. They want to be part of these growing networks of PPOs and so on. So all of these larger organizations are very interested in ratings, and it matters. Just like, just like hotels are interested, just like Restaurants are interested, just like the service is interested. We do know that there is a tight relationship between market share and reputation. And so reputation management, just like every other industry, is crucial. And in healthcare, everybody's fighting for every possible customer, whether they are for-profit hospitals or not-for-profit nursing homes. 
they're all fighting for the customer because they're all competing for the customer. And this is the differentiator, the customer experience. Does any insurance company take these ratings into account? In other words, here's the reimbursement that we give. If you're three stars, you get 95% of it. If you're five stars, you get 105% of it. You know what I'm saying? I mean, do they take it into account in any way? Do they reward doctors for being good? Yeah, they do. So here's the deal. In the United States right now, there's a mandatory inpatient survey for hospital called HCAPS. And 2% of a hospital's Medicare revenue is at risk based on their star ratings. Oh, so the government government does. Now, Blue Cross, for example, has tied its reimbursement in 10 different states to those ratings. Medicare Advantage, prescription drug plans, all these things now are finding that there's a tight relationship between their customer service ratings and what they get paid. Doctors, it's tied into, there's now physician compare, there's all kinds of programs for physicians to improve quality measures, which vary from readmission rates to morbidity to mortality to, uh, you can go on and on and on. So there's quality measures, which are very much about the clinical. And then there are patient experience measures, which are about the intangible. And so uh, the whole healthcare industry is now preoccupied with pharmacy industry, for example, ratings of pharmacists and pharmacies matter for the prescription drug plan. So this is permeating every aspect of healthcare today. If you want to be competitor, be successful and compete and grow market share, you've got to be good at the customer experience. It's, it's, uh, it's quite amazing. I mean, I, I didn't realize that hospitals were incentivized to provide not only good care, but good care experience. Yeah. Okay. So healthcare, it seems to me, is very, very much parallel to a lot of other things. So you talked about the clinical experience, which most of us don't understand. And then there's the patient care experience, which we fully well understand. So probably of all the things that we buy in our lifetime, uh, we understand medical things maybe the least, unless we have special training. So you go buy a car, you understand a little bit about a car, you go to a doctor, you maybe understand almost nothing about that because you just really put your life in their hands, right? Right. So I would imagine that uh, all kinds of businesses could learn from the most extreme business, which is that we don't understand what they're doing, but we go there anyway, and we put our life in their hands. So how do we tie a relationship or draw a line between other kinds of companies and hospitals and what they do so we can make a parallel? Sure. So the healthcare industry in both the United States and Canada, you know, custom learning systems works both sides of the borders, is preoccupied now with survival, with growth, with ROI. And after the Affordable Care Act came in, Under Obama, there was billions and billions of dollars of investment by the private sector in in healthcare because they saw this opportunity for growth, which took place to a large extent with the Affordable Care Act. But getting back to this issue, the challenge for large complex organizations, so any large industry out there is, how do you successfully change your culture from one that is task-driven, job-driven, and financially driven to customer driven. And that is what we have been obsessed with, relentlessly focusing on. And that's what I think all your listeners wanna know, and that is how do we change the culture so that every employee gets it, that they need to own the relationship with their customers, 
they need to see themselves as customer advocates and not renters or squatters. And so this is what healthcare has been preoccupied with. And I think the lesson, the lessons they've gained and learned about simultaneously improving quality and the customer experience, I think they've learned a lot of lessons that are valuable for the corporate world. I can tell you from our perspective, changing a corporate culture is not easy. All you had to do is read the book, Who Says Elephants Can't Dance, by the CEO of IBM and his incredible story about his journey to transform a culture of 180,000 employees. And uh, the issue is you change a culture as a byproduct of changing your processes. In other words, doing things together. Now, let me give an example of a concrete best practice that's relevant for everybody in the corporate world. And that is, how do your employees handle complaints? In the absence of education, in the absence of training frontline providers, most, most employees, when a customer gets mad at them, get mad back at them, rather than recognizing a complaint is a gift. And so one of the best practices we teach is a service recovery that when you mess up, you fess up and dress up. In other words, it's your job to own that problem. And so the problem is, where are managers? Well, most, most frontline employees want managers to handle these complaints. Where are managers when you need them? They're in meetings, webinars, seminars, probably organized by you and I. Uh, <laughs> they're there when you need them. So we want to empower the frontline. And what healthcare is learning is that if you can't empower the frontline, you don't get to change your culture. And so we teach seven key skills, what we call the empowerment bundle. And we ask our CEOs to issue a license to please. And the license to please looks like a driver's license, but basically it says, we trust you to use your own good judgment to do whatever it takes to keep that customer happy. You know who also does has a license to please? Nordstrom, except Nordstrom doesn't give out a license. It's just part of their culture. And so what we do with our hospitals is we're having them consciously focus on hardwiring best practices, consistent education, and engaging the front line systematically for three years. It, is the, it takes three years to change a culture. And ask any senior decision maker and any C-suite member of any large corporation, and they will tell you that this culture thing change, A, is absolutely a priority, and B, elusive. And therefore, my recommendation is that to anybody listening at a, at a senior decision-making level is get good and understand the best practices of culture change, because that's what healthcare is doing today. So let's talk about the idea of culture change and, and this license to please love, love that concept. Love the idea. You give them a little driver's license looking thing that, and you tell them that they can go do it. But what's the reality of that? You know, I mean, how much boundaries do you give somebody when you say, okay, listen, whatever the problem is, you handle it and get it because two different people are going to have different opinions about what handle it means. Uh, they might need to spend money. Uh, those resources could go out of control. Two different people might not be, given the same resolution, which might not feel fair to me if I find out what you got in your resolution. How do, how do you deal with some of those kinds of issues? 
Well, I had a, a manager at a hospital in Kentucky say to me one time, you can't hold people accountable for what they don't know. Let me repeat that. You can't hold frontline employees accountable for what they don't know. And what happens is the uninformed leader issues a decree, issues a directive, issues a policy that said, we're all going to be great. We're all going to be five-star. We're all going to be in the 90th percentile. What they don't do is educate and empower their frontline to know how to do that. Just so for clarification, number one, the magical word is how. I heard right. you say how to do that. Right. There's got to be some business rules. There's got to be some parameters. Uh, and yeah. the devil's obviously going to be in the details here. you got to give people the tools to do their job. Uh, Zig Ziglar, the famous Texas motivator, passed away about six or seven years ago. He said, if you think training your employees and losing them is expensive, try not training and keeping them. <laughs> because the most expensive liability you've got are frontline employees that don't know what to do. And so therefore, if you want to be a provider of choice, if you want to be great at the customer experience, you must be an employer of choice. You must know how to recruit, educate, empower, and keep talent. That is absolutely job number one. And they're related. What I've learned uh, in the 34 years that I've been doing this is that a 1% change in employee engagement and morale equals a 2% change in the customer experience. Ask any employee. A happy employee equals happy customers. So if you want your employees to value, nurture, and care about their customers, you've got to value, nurture, and care about them. So yes, you've got to engage the front line. And what you're going to need to do is, is train and engage leadership to know how to empower the front line. Okay, so and let's. That was key. what I'm hearing, I'm hearing a lot of attitudes. There are certain, there are success attitudes that, that kind of make sense to me here. You know, there are a lot of middle-sized companies uh, who have a rather toxic attitude toward their employees and adversarial relationship with their employees. And sometimes they feel like these people are just lucky to have a job. And if it weren't for me, they wouldn't be able to take care of their families. That clearly, that's a toxic attitude that doesn't bring the best out in those frontline employees that you're talking about. So what are the great companies, the most successful companies What's the inside track on, on creating that really good relationship with an employee so that they can then be trained to have a really great attitude with the customers? Well, I mean, if you look at those high-performing organizations, high-performing meaning ROI on the market, those that are consistently earning EBITDAs of 15, 20, 25%, uh, if you look at those high-performing organizations, they have an engaged workforce and they make it a priority. And they continually invest in their leadership and they continue to invest in their people. You know, I remember so vividly when I read Jack Walsh's book the first time, uh, you know, when he took over GE uh, in the middle of tight times, he invested in GE University and put enormous capital into training leadership to know how to lead. And that's key. So, uh, again, uh, your, uh, our, our experience with culture change is that it is a byproduct of people doing best practices that work. And when you do it consistently enough and stay at it, it displaces old best practices that didn't work. And 
I like to say for culture change to work just fine, it must be led from the top and the front line. And I'm going to share with you the game changer that we have discovered in healthcare because healthcare is dominated. It reflects everything. It has baby boomers, no longer in the majority anymore, by the way, all the generations there and it's struggling. And so what we do is we take and recruit one out of every 15 to 20 frontline employees. We take the brightest and best. I like to say ignite the best, empower the rest. We take the brightest and best people with winning attitudes who walk the talk, who are not management. You say, why not management? Because most frontline employees don't trust most managers with the exception of you and I, Joel, and I'm not so sure about you sometimes. So we take the brightest and best and we train them to be trainers. So rather than using outside consultants, rather than using HR, rather than inviting their own managers who they may or may not like, we pick their winners that they respect and we train them to train. And that is magic. It's the difference for frontline employees listening to their parents versus listening to their friends. They listen and they act and they respond. And this is how you bring about culture change. So what we do is we record 5% of a, an organization's workforce each year as trainers. So by the third year, you've had 15% of their employees. Plus, if you successfully engage management and don't assume they know, that's 20%. That 20% tips the culture to a new culture. It takes three years of constant focus to hardwire a customer-driven culture. Well, I, I guess it also, uh, it takes that long for the employees to believe that it's really true, that it's yeah. not a flash in the pan, it's not going to go away anytime soon, that the consistent behavior for a longer period of time in three years is a good number, uh, that people say, you know, boy, our, our company, this is how we operate now. Is that kind of part of what happens? Absolutely. Most employees have built-in skunk detectors. They know when they're being BSed. I'm an expert on healthcare, or well, any of these flavor of the month campaigns, the fish program, the pickle program, the who moved my cheese program, all these things are good, except they're not sustainable because they don't get to the root cause of engaging the front line, doing meaningful best practices, evidence-based best practices that change outcomes. Hey, so let, me ask, let me ask a question. So beside the benefit to the patient or the customers, because what you're talking about really works in every industry, no matter what, this right. seems to me. Um, how is it in terms of employee engagement, turnover, and just employee satisfaction? Right. What's the impact of your program on those kinds of elements? So I've written a lot of books. One of them is called Satisfaction Guarantee, How to Satisfy Every Customer Every Time. 1.2 million people have read or participated in the seminar. But I wrote a book called Keep Your Nurses and Healthcare Professionals for Life. And there is all kinds of direct evidence and link between retention and turnover and employee engagement. And I can cite data and numbers and stats, but the bottom line is if you want to keep your quality people, when people are learning, they're not leaving. When they're engaged, they're not enraged. When they're owners, they're unlikely going to be looking around for another place to go. So there is a tight correlation statistically, and we all know anecdotally, that when you successfully engage employees, they're going to stay with you. In fact, they're going to help you recruit others. 
And so we need to make our employees our champions and our recruiters. Listen, I, I spoke at the uh, recruitment conference a couple of years ago, National Recruitment Conference. Number one source of employee recruitment today is peer referral. Used to be job fairs. Job fairs doesn't cut anymore. It's networking on all the website, social media with your classmates that draws people. And there's nothing more powerful than, than a peer bragging about their work environment and how they're treated to other peers to say, hey, I want to be part of that. It ends up getting reflected on websites like Indeed and Glassdoor and Facebook with ratings because employees and former employees now are doing ratings. So there's no, there's no hidden stories anymore. You know, these things become public. And, and so we're in a marketplace and a workplace that is transparent, which is another reason why becoming an employer of choice needs to be a strategic priority for every one of your listeners. This is really a cool concept because uh, really, if the inputs are good, the inputs being the employees and, and, the, and the rest of the people who are on the team, then your output's going to be good too. So if you have good going in, you're going to have good coming out. So good karma going in, people being happy, people enjoying their job, they're engaged, they're proud of them of themselves, they're proud of their work environment. Uh, they're going to have pride of ownership in, in the output that they do. I mean, that's what makes sense to me. Absolutely. Yeah. And in the service industry... You know, I think I think industry has tended to focus on quality measures for manufacturing, but in the service industry where you're dealing with people and their values and their attitudes and how they communicate with everybody, these skill sets are essential. And what shocks me is senior corporate executives that haven't figured out yet that you do the math, Joel. You're running a company with 1,000 employees. You have a 25% turnover. Multiply how many employees you will hire over 10 years. Oh. Have you created a systematic methodology and adopted best practices to recruit and keep? Because you're going to be employing a whole lot of people and hiring a whole lot of people. And what we know about demographics is that the demand for employees, we're at full employment now, basically, in most parts of the United States and Canada. And so it's just going to get tighter and harder to find talented, try finding coders, try finding nurses, try finding, you know, pick an industry where the shortage is right now, try finding skilled anybody. And so therefore, job number one, keep the good people that you've got. And employees quit their bosses, not their jobs. Boss spelled backwards is double S-O-B. And <laughs> take the S-O-B out of this and teach our leaders how to successfully win the hearts and minds of their employees uh, to be successful. And so that's a skill set that, again, I want to go back to, you can't hold managers accountable for what they don't know. Have you trained your leaders on how to successfully engage their employees? I love this because it really gets to the heart of the matter. Uh, but one of the things that I, I know about what you've done and, and the way you run your company, there's a lot of systems that make this happen. It just doesn't happen randomly. Uh, could you talk about some of the systems that you put in place in hospitals that can then be generalized into other kinds of companies? So my rallying cry in everything that I do in how we lead our clients, how we run our own business and how I lead my personal life is, it, I, I quote a friend, Wayne Cotton, he said, if you have a problem, make it a procedure and it won't be a problem anymore. It's another way of saying that 
quality is not about the individual, but about the process that you bring to the table. And so if you're going to adopt a system, why not adopt an evidence-based best practice? Why go out there and invent the wheel when the wheel has been invented a long time ago, but there's more sophisticated versions everywhere? And I have a saying, if there's a better way to do it, I want to do it yesterday. Now, as an organization, do you count on your senior leadership as the source of ideas, innovation, and wisdom? Or do you go to the people that really know uh, what the ideas are, and that is the front line? And so, you know, our message is this, that we need to create a culture, more importantly, a culture that is driven by customers, the customer. We need to create a culture where everybody gets it, that continuous improvement needs to be part of the way we do our job. Good, better, best, never let it rest till your good is better and your better is best. But it can't be just at a senior level. It's what we've got to make our frontline uh, accountable for and owners of this concept of continuous process improvement. And when you do that, anything and everything is possible. Uh, you look at some of the most high successful uh, organizations in the marketplace today, they go to their frontline as a source of innovation. And we need, we need to do that as well, not just in, in how they serve the customer, but in how we continually reinvent ourselves and develop new products and new markets. You know, it's, it's a funny thing that uh, companies have all this information right at their fingertips and they don't frequently access it. You're talking about frontline. Uh, you know, when I talk to audiences or I, I advise companies uh, on matters of innovation, because I spent a lot of years of, uh, of my career in the venture capital business, which is basically financing innovation, that many of the answers that we need are right there in front of us. Uh, you know, the employees that we have, they all have children who all have iPhones, who all have computers. And all we have to do is go to our ranks. And those people probably know a lot about whatever solution we need. But senior management very frequently isolates itself. How do you encourage uh, senior level people to interface with, uh, with rank and file people in, in a healthy way? What, how, what does that look like? Well, let me talk about three best practices that every corporation should embrace. Number one, that they need to have and they need to ensure that every leader, vice president, manager, supervisor, knows how to conduct inspiring meetings. How else do you build teamwork? How else do you build esprit de corps? How else do you celebrate people? How else do you bring out your best? Now, I know what you're thinking. Most people say, inspiring meetings. What's inspiring about a, a bloody meeting? <laughs> you know, one manager say to me, I schedule meetings, nobody comes. I say, what does that say about your meeting? I had a man say to me, I'm not coming to a meeting to get group spanked. I said, I don't blame you. So number one, inspiring meetings. There are eight attributes of an inspiring meeting. Number two, leaders need to embrace a principle called intentional daily staff rounding. And daily intentional staff rounding. If you want your employees to care about what you do and your role, you need to care about them. And that means every manager checks in with every employee daily. They check in for one of two reasons. They check in with them personally. How was your kid's concert last night? How was that weekend getaway? I'm not talking about being best friend. I'm talking about being friendly, firm, but not familiar. And then secondly, they need to check in about the job. Did all your supplies get here? Did everybody show up? What can I do to help you? It's called embracing a servant's heart. 
If you will consistently on a daily basis, let your people know that you're interested in them, they will be interested in you. Now, are you talking about it at the human level? Like, how are your kids? Did you go how to are your kids? How, how's that new car you got? What's happening with your mom? I understand she's not doing well. You need to know what's going on in your people's lives because if you if if they know you're interested in them, they will be interested in you and what you need to accomplish. We are loyal to the people that are loyal to us. So, best practice number one. Inspiring meetings once a month. Now, today we're moving into a complement to that as daily huddles, but I'll get to that in a moment. Number two, key best practice is intentional daily staff rounding. Just because you sit in a cubicle beside an employee doesn't mean you know anything about them or what's going on in their life. And then number three, uh, every C-suite executive, but particularly the CEO, needs to be visible within the organization. And there are two ways for that to happen because visibility is the currency of trust. And when the organization knows about and is aware of and is connected with the CEO, with the leader, everything is possible because every CEO needs to take an organization and all its employees over a gap all the time. And it's a trust gap. Follow me. We're going to do these new best practices. We're going to enter these new businesses. We're going to launch these new products. And they say, well, how do we know it works? And well, we don't know. Trust me. you got to follow me here. So I recommend two things for every C-suite. Number one, get visible and round throughout the organization on a consistent, regular basis. You need to set aside an hour a day to be visible. Your business to know what's going on. Uh, Mr. Marriott, obsessive about visiting every Marriott facility. Sam Walton, if you haven't read his book, you got to read it. Absolutely out visiting three, four, five, six places every day. You got to be visible, number one. Number two, regular quarterly town hall forums where you bring all your employees together. Now, all your employees might be 20. It might be 2,000. You bring them all together so there's a sense of oneness where you share with them key factors of success that will draw them in and, again, make them feel part of the organization. When you do those two things, you destroy rumor, and rumor destroys the culture of an organization. And how long does it take rumor to go from one end of the organization to the other? Not very Uh, long. And with texting, it's even less. Uh, You know, you're watching TV today, and they beep out a dirty word. What do you imagine in your mind's eye? A dirtier word. Because you don't know. You don't have the facts. (laughs) So this is key. So for the C-suite, I'm adamant about how to do that. Now, with healthcare, obviously, we have a slightly different approach to those two principles. But the two principles are essential for every large corporation that wants to be customer driven. You know, this is all common sense, but just not common practice. Uh, You know, to to me, I'm, I'm not that doesn't diminish it at all. But, you know, so many of these things I listen and I think, you know, uh, to me, it just makes perfect sense that the CEO be walking around. I mean, in a funny way, I mean, the CEO doesn't have a lot of more important things to do than to make sure that the team is, is doing what the team is supposed to do. And, and not with a whip, but, you know, by, uh, you know, I guess there's the carrot and the stick. And you're talking about the carrot, really. You're talking about really pulling people to greatness as opposed to uh, beating them into submission. 
Dwight Eisenhower said, aggressive leadership is assault, not leadership. And the problem is, for most of us, we embrace a leadership style that was the leadership model of our first boss. And we really get over it. And so unless there's been an intervention, unless we've seen a better way. You know, I started doing the Tom Peters In Search of Excellence program 25 years ago, uh, when, when Peters had a breakthrough in terms of what do, what do the top 100 organizations do to successfully compete? Well, the bottom line, you know, we all know that probably there's only 10 or 15 of those top 100 that Tom Peters talked about a long time ago that are still around. So we've got to continuously be reinventing ourselves. And we reinvent ourselves by how successfully we listen to our customers. As a former sales trainer, what I learned a long time ago is if we will listen to our customers, they will teach us everything we know about how to get them and how to keep them for life. But we've got to listen. And we've got to engage our front line to listen. And we've got to engage our leadership to listen to the front line. In other words, we've got to create an organization that is driven by the customer. And when we do that, everything is possible. I will tell you this right now, that 50% of our revenues come from products and services that we developed that we didn't have three years ago. Listen, that, that's the story for everybody. The world is changing so fast. The things that used to work in the old days, the customer didn't matter that much. There weren't that many choices. They're going to stay with us no matter what. You know, we can do whatever we want. They're still going to be staying with us. Now there's a lot of choices. There's a lot of information that can go into the marketplace fast. Uh, hey, this is this is really something. This is. I, I, I'm old enough to remember when gasoline powered cars. <laughs> <laughs> okay, me too. You know what is every car company tooling up for the next decade? The, the gasoline engine is already part of the past, and electric driven everything hybrids are now uh, going to be the future. And so again, we need to successfully engage everybody in this journey of change. And I would make the case, you know, I used to do the old classical classes on change management. Thriving on change was the title of the keynote that I gave everywhere. And so you'd teach the importance of listening. You'd teach the grieving process that employees go through when they change. You know, I I can tell you what 99% of most speakers spoke about change. I will say this. Today, the answer to change is instantaneous ability to change is by engaging the front line as owners. Because please remember this, Joel, authorship equals ownership. When the front line are successfully involved in the creation of the process, you don't need to persuade them to change. You don't need all these steps to, they lead it. And how do I know that? Because I can name all the organizations we've worked with in the United States across the country, we give a money back guarantee about our processes that have successfully reinvented themselves with and through the front line. Until your front line own the relationship with the customer, you will never get better. And listen, and and everything that you've shared, this is the inside track on great customer service. To me, uh, the people on the front lines, I think of them as spies. I mean, they, they have all the inside information. They have everything that you need. The whole inside track resides in your front line. So if people just follow your lead, that's how they're going to profit from the inside. They're going to profit from the insight, the inside track that you have. And I really appreciate you being on the show and sharing everything that you've done over the last many, many years, or a teeny fraction really of, of everything. And, and by the way, I, I love the little rhymes and the little sayings and slogans. I, I think the way you phrase things is just brilliant. So thank you so much for 
uh, being on the show and sharing what you know and, and just being with us here today. My pleasure. All right. Thanks, Brian. You've been listening to Profit from the Inside with Joel Block. For more insights and to learn more, visit joelblock.com. How about a shout out and a giant thanks to my podcast producer, David Wolf, and his team at Podcast and Radio Networks. Profit from the Inside simply wouldn't be what it is without David and his team. For more information or to learn how you can launch and produce your own podcast, reach out to podcastandradio.com. Produced by Audavita Studios. Connect your voice to the world.